You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So this morning, invite you to the Gospel of John. We're going to begin, pick up where we left off in verse 19. And as you're finding that place, I want you to think back to the time that you encountered Jesus. You know, that time where you realized who he was and who you were not, and you found yourself crying out, going, I need you to save me. And maybe it was a, an opportunity that you were in a situation that you needed out of. Maybe it was you were just scared out of hell, and you realized, man, I, I need this salvation that, that this person, these people are thinking about and talking about. But for some of us, it is very dramatic, life-changing experiences. You find yourself in a very helpless situation. Maybe you are living a certain lifestyle, and then all of a sudden you meet Jesus. And it's a really maybe a traumatic experience. I was talking to a young man this week. He shared for me, it was when his sister, she's 28 years old, dying of cancer in, in a hospice bed, and it was at that moment that he knew she only had hours to live, and man, that's when God spoke to him and revealed to him, trust me, and, and he did. But for others, maybe it's less dramatic. Maybe it's not so life-changing. For me, there was really never a time that I can remember not knowing Jesus. I mean, I just kind of grew up with that. I grew up... Uh, hearing all the Bible stories, being taught those, memorizing the books of the Bible, and uh, being taken to church and, and taught those sort of things. And so for me, there was really never a time where I didn't know about Him. And I, I want to say this, I'll pause just for this. Uh, if you've got a fourth or fifth grader, you need to know how blessed you are to have Fredo and Jackie and Kim those young kids, man, they are learning the books of the Bible. They are hearing the Bible taught in powerful, engaging ways. And so it's exciting to that happen, that our kids will grow up with this foundation, and that was me. But the thing that I have begun to realize that, in fact, I would challenge you this way. The next time you're hanging out with somebody, it happened to me this week, is you maybe having coffee, maybe you're having lunch, is take a moment, if you don't know about them, and say, hey, tell me about your faith journey. Don't ask them if they believe in Jesus, but say, tell me about your journey to faith, or what has it been? It's been remarkable to get to know people on that level. So as I've been doing that, here's what I've come to believe. There are two things. One, it doesn't matter your experience. It can be dramatic and totally life-changing, or it could be over years of just faithful teaching and love. The invitation, no matter what it is or who it is, to believe is always the same. The invitation doesn't change. We just happen to be, that invitation comes when we're experiencing different things. The second thing is this, is that no experience stands alone. Everybody I've, I've ever had this conversation with, there's always other people that God uses to facilitate that call. In fact, I've known people that have had very dramatic experiences, totally life-changing, and they go through something or they hit rock bottom or whatever it might be, and they remember back to people that God used in their lives. 
For those that are less dramatic, it's been those people that faithfully loved them and taught them God's Word, those parents, grandparents, Bible study teachers, that lady at vacation Bible school to give you the extra cookie or whatever it might be. And so as you think back to your encounter with Jesus, let's see if those two things that I've been thinking about are actually biblical. And so let's begin in verse 19 this morning, picking up where we left off. He says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but said or confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say for yourself? And what we need to realize is that during this time that John is writing this about John the Baptist, in his day, there was tremendous confusion going on. This crazy preacher out in the wilderness for, has been telling this message of repentance for about a year now. And what they're seeing is large multitudes of people leaving the comfort of the home, the comfort of the cities, traveling out to the wilderness, the desert, to see this man, to hear his message, and they're being dunked in the Jordan River. But Matthew even tells us that Herod sought out John, and he almost believed. But about five or six weeks earlier, John had just baptized Jesus. So these religious leaders are watching all of this happen, and they're threatened. They're watching these people going out in droves, go out into the desert, out into the wilderness, to hear this preacher talking about repentance, and then he's being, they're being baptized. And what's happening is John is gaining the attention of the religious elite. But notice the questions, and then John's responses. So they go to him, and they say, are you... Who are you? And he says, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? He says, I'm not. Then they say, are you the prophet? And he says, no. Every time, his answers get shorter and shorter. And I believe it's because John wants nothing to do with the spotlight. He wants them to know this isn't about him. He is trying to deflect the attention away from himself. So why would they pick Elijah? Of all the ones they would read about in the Old Testament, why do they go to him and say, could you be Elijah? Well, first of all, he probably looked a lot like Elijah. He lived a lifestyle very uh, complementary to the Old Testament prophet. But Malachi predicts in chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But John says, Listen, I am not him. I am not Elijah. But notice what he does say about himself. In verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So he denies being this prophetic figure, but he reaches back 700 years. And he says, this is who 
I am. He goes back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. This says that a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Seems like a strange thing. If you're going to identify yourself, this would be a weird one to pick. But what he's talking about is the idea of really a highway worker. That God knew that his children, the Israelites, were in captivity in Babylonia. That he was finally going to bring them home. The destruction, we, we almost can't imagine, of cities being destroyed. And someone needs to go before them to clear the path. Someone needs to make way for the exiles to come back home. And John says, that is me. That is my job. That is my calling. I am to prepare a way for the Lord. I am to clear the path so that others can make their way back to the Lord. But the Jews, they just still can't understand why you are baptizing John. Because look at what they say in verse 24. And now they sent the Pharisees. They want them to go and find out. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ and you're not Elijah, nor the prophet... Then why? And the thing is, when they see John, this is what they see. They see John as someone that's outside the religious system. They set up their systems in place to keep people in line, to know who was truly devout, who wasn't, and John didn't fit into that. He had no place of honor. He had no uh, place of, of power in the temple. He also was someone he didn't associate with the right groups. He wasn't a Pharisee, wasn't a Sadducee, wasn't even Herodian. He didn't have a, a religious group to fit into. He had no authority to baptize, especially not in the temple. That's who they see. But what is ironic is let's think about John's resume for just a moment. He had a miraculous intervention birth by God. John chapter or Luke chapter 1, a total miracle that John's even born. He's a Nazarite and he walked that line precisely. He never cut his hair, never touched a dead body, never drank from the fruit of the vine. He was pure and uncontaminated. Think about this one. From the mother's womb, he was indwelled by the Holy Spirit. How in the world could he do that? He was filled with the Spirit from birth. He was sent by God. He baptized Jesus. Think about his resume. You're reading through. All of a sudden, you come to the last line where it says references. And you say, you know, upon request, Matthew eleven eleven. you get to say, Jesus said, I am, there's been no greater man than me. I mean, John's resume would have blown theirs out of the water. But notice John's humility in verse 26. John answered them and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you don't know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptized. So John says, listen, I'm not the one to know. I am not the one that can bring anyone hope. I simply have a message to deliver. And he turns the conversation away from him, and he points it to Jesus. I told you last week of my love for the Chronicles of Narnia. And as soon as I read this and was sent through this, I, 
I, I thought of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the most famous book that C.S. Lewis wrote in the series by far. Because there's this beautiful uh, world, but it's gone old, it is dark, it's cold. And these four kids discover this land through the wardrobe. And when they come out into this land, they realize this snow-covered forest. And what they begin to hear is that it's always winter, but never Christmas. And for a hundred years, evil is reigning and, and hope is dead. In fact, those in Narnia, they're losing hope. But when these children arrive, things begin to change. All of a sudden, there's this glimmer of hope again. And that ancient prophecy of Narnia that said two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve would appear they finally then begin to have hope. But these children, they were the, the messengers of that hope. But the hope of those, those characters, the citizens of Narnia, was not in the children. Their hope was in someone else, a lion named Aslan. The children were not bringing hope in themselves. They were bringing it in the one that would come after them. And in 1 John, we meet the man that brings the message of hope. Not in himself. He says, it's not about me. So John the Baptist points to the one that will fulfill all their hopes and the only one that can satisfy their deepest longings. So John, he knows his purpose. And he has prepared the way for the true hope to come. But the religious leaders, there's just something about it that they can't grass, so they leave. But it's something amazing then begins to happen, and it says the next day in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him. So 40 days prior, about six weeks prior, he had just baptized Jesus in the Jordan. Jesus wanders off into the wilderness, and for 40 days he is tempted by Satan. And Jesus comes back by where John is. And as he comes by, I believe John shouts, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I've been saying. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself, I didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. This is what I was called to. This is my purpose in life that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John bore witness and he said, you won't believe it, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself, I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water had told me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And John makes a massive announcement here. He says, this one that I got to baptize, that I saw the Spirit descend and remain on him, he makes the statement, the proclamation, the Lamb of God. And people would have immediately known exactly what John was referring to, especially John the Baptist. Did you see, they're just days before the Passover celebration. And the focus of that time 
was going to be on the sacrifice of that Passover lamb where they're thinking back to Exodus 12 and retelling the story of the deliverance from Egypt. And so here is John, twice a day, morning and evening, a lamb would be killed in the temple. And you think about who John's father was, Zechariah. He was a priest. John would have grown up year after year, his father coming home with his clothes covered in the blood of the lambs. So why? The lamb's death is this. The lamb's death all those years was necessary because of sin. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins to happen. So all along, year after year, these lambs were pointing to the one that God would send who would finally shed his blood so that the forgiveness could happen. And Jesus, John recognizes, is that lamb that he would finally offer his life as a sacrifice for sins. And John recognizes it. And then he announces it. Well, then we get to see Jesus calling his first disciples. You begin in verse 35, and John is beginning to give us kind of a day-to-day account. We had a day, the next day happens, Jesus comes in, he makes the proclamation, this is the Lamb of God. And then in verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, John the Baptist, standing with two men that had been following him for the past year. And they looked at Jesus, and as he walked by and said, John once again said, Behold, men, that is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So these two disciples are Andrew and most likely the gospel writer of John. And John announces, this is the lamb. And his two disciples follow him. So Andrew and John, they were the very first disciples of John before they ever come disciples of Jesus. But I love this part. Jesus sees them following in verse 38. And he turns around and he says to them, what are you seeking? Now, Jesus being God, he, he knows this. He knows what they're after, but he wants to hear it from them. And their response is really interesting. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They said, where, where are you going? Where are you staying? And I think it's because they want to know Jesus better. They want to spend some time with him. They, they want to know more about him. So Jesus replies to them. In verse 39, he said to them, Come, and then he makes a promise. You will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, or about four in the afternoon. And so Jesus says, Come and see. And Jesus invites them into a closer relationship with him. But notice what Andrew does. In verse 40, one of them who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his brother Simon, and he said to him, Listen, brother, we have found the Messiah, the the Christ. I know who he is. Come and see him. And so when Andrew meets Jesus... When he comes to see, 
He wants others to then do the same. In fact, if you turn and you were to go through the Gospel of John searching for the name of Andrew, you will see him two other times. In John 6, we'll get there, and in John 12. You know what you see both times from Andrew? He's bringing someone to Jesus. And notice who he brings in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon Peter. The one that is called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew brings the rock. He brings Peter. It's the one that becomes the pillar of the first church. The one that gets out of the boat when no one else would, and he walks on water. The one that, yes, he had a temper, but he was ready to defend Jesus to the death in the garden. He's the one that gets to stand at the Mount Transfiguration and to see Jesus. He's the one that is martyred, and tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down on a cross because he was not worthy to be hung in the same way as his Lord Jesus. And it all started with an invitation from Andrew. I found the Messiah. Come and see. And man, I want to know so much more about Andrew. He never gets to write, and we never see him writing a book of the Bible. He didn't walk on water. He wasn't at the Mount Transfiguration. He wasn't even one of the close three of uh, Peter, James, and John. But without Andrew, there is no Peter. That Andrew was the invitation of come and see. But Jesus, he's just getting started. Look at verse 43. And so the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So he's heading west. And he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So he's traveling from the Jordan River to Galilee and he finds Peter. And Jesus says to him, follow me or come and see. And once again, notice what Philip does in verse 45. Philip goes and finds Nathanael. And he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So just like with Andrew, who goes and finds Peter, Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. And Philip's description is really interesting. He says, hey, you remember the one that our parents and grandparents used to tell us about? You remember when we would read the, the scriptures and we would open them up and we'd read about Moses and the prophets and they would talk about this one that is going to come. You're not going to believe it. I've seen him. And you're not going to believe it. He's actually the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Who would have thought? But notice Nathaniel's response. In verse 46, he said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, there's a lot of discussion on what Nathaniel means. Now, one of the theories is that Nathaniel is from the neighboring city, Cana. And it'd be like city rivalries. And it'd be like us going, um, you know, how, how could any, here's something great, somebody that's doing amazing things and go, how in the world could anything good ever come out of Corsicana? And so I looked, nothing there except Collins Street Bakery, maybe like that. 
But what good could possibly come out of that city? Others say it's because Nathaniel knew the prophecies. And when he would read about the glories of this chosen one coming, then man, if he's going to come, he's going to come from a place like Jerusalem, where every eye would be on that city, a prominent city. But I think it's Nathaniel was looking at this and that Nazareth was just a city that no one would really think of, that the king of kings, that that is where he would be coming from. But here's what we start to see about Nathaniel, and it's important. Nathaniel is very plain spoken. He speaks his mind, and you always know where you stand with Nathaniel. And that's going to be important because look at Philip's response. What does he see, or what does he say? Philip said to him, he borrows from Jesus. Good thing to do, come and see. So Philip, he doesn't argue. He doesn't get in a debate with him. He just says, hey, just come and see for yourself. And when Jesus sees Nathanael coming, it's a very different interaction. In verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael coming, and he looks at him and he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, or a true Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. So when Jesus says, an Israelite indeed or a true Israelite, Jesus is announcing his heritage. But also, when Jesus sees him, he says, this is one in whom there is no deceit, or yours might say guile. And what that means, it's a person that's transparent, honest, trustworthy. You're plain spoken, and you speak your mind. But hold on to what Jesus just said about Nathaniel being a man with no deceit or no guile. And so in verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, uh, Hey, do we know each other here? Like, how do you know me? But he sees Nathaniel at the core. Jesus then does him one better. Jesus looks at him and he says, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, not only do I know you, Nathaniel, but I saw you under that tree. And, and just like with Nathaniel's statement about um, how can anything good come out of Nazareth, there, there's a lot of debate on what really is going on here. But here's an interesting theory. He's under the fig, the fig tree, and a fig tree would be a place of, of peace. It, it was a place where you would go and reflect. It, it was a, a place of meditation, a, a place where you would often open up the Scriptures and you would read and to think and to contemplate. And some believe Nathaniel is sitting under this tree and, the reading, and he is reading and thinking about Jacob. But why Jacob? Why would that be what he is thinking about? Well, Jacob was the son of Isaac the brother of Ishmael. And Jacob was known as the deceiver. Jacob was also known as the one that wrestled with God, and he had his name changed to Israel. That Jacob is the one, the beginning of the Israelites. And so when Jesus said, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, that Jesus was actually telling Nathaniel what he was thinking about as he sat under that tree. And what's amazing, 
I thought, man, that's just crazy. That's just somebody grasping for straws to try to make an interesting point. But there's actually more evidence to support that that we're about to see. But the point is this. Jesus convinces Nathaniel. He says enough that Nathaniel looks at him and he knows this. He doesn't know everything, but he knows, hey, this is somebody that's more than just a regular man. Because notice what Nathaniel says in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him and he said, Rabbi, which means teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Nathaniel pronounces that Jesus is the very Son of God, the one that God promised from ancient times, the King of Israel, the title that Jesus would carry all the way to the cross. But Jesus then looks at Nathaniel and he says this. It's almost comical. In verse 50, Jesus answered him and says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see even greater things than this. And all I could think about was the 1970s band, uh, Backham Turner Overdrive. You ain't seen nothing yet. Because this is where he says, listen, I'm about to blow your mind, Nathaniel. And next week, we get to get into the signs that John will record for us. But Jesus says, just hold on. And in verse 51, notice what Jesus says. And he said to him, truly, truly. I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now think back to Jacob. Think back to his encounter with God in Genesis 28. Jacob is running for his life because he deceived his brother and stole the blessing. In fact, in one day he runs about 43 miles across a desert, a wilderness area. He's so tired, he lays down and uses a rock as a pillow. And God gives him a vision. And in verse 12 of chapter 28, this is the dream he gets. He says, and he dreamed, behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And so here's the significance of what Jesus said. Jacob saw angels moving up and down this ladder. This ladder connected heaven to earth. And the angels were the communication between the two realms. But now reread verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. Jesus, here's the truth. I'm the ladder. I am the connection between heaven and earth. Jesus says, I am the way to heaven. And we get to begin seeing the unpacking of the signs that this is no ordinary man. So think back to where we began. That it doesn't matter your experience. And these men had different experiences. Some were following John before they ever followed Jesus. Some were just doing their ordinary activities throughout the day. So whether you had a dramatic or life-changing experience, or that it was just over this years of faithful teaching and love, the invitation to believe is always the same. Come and see. But then that invitation, it never stands alone. 
There's always other people that God uses to facilitate the call. Andrew was first a disciple of John before he ever followed Jesus. Now, I've often heard it say, most people, before they trust Jesus, will trust a Christian. Now, God uses people. Andrew, he goes and gets Peter. Philip, he went to get Nathaniel. And I think the same is true for us. But this morning, I want to leave you with Jesus' first recorded words in this gospel. If you go back and look at Jesus' first words that John ever writes down, it's a question. What are you looking for? Think about those disciples of all the things they could have answered. Maybe they were looking for an assurance that I just want to know I'm okay with God. Maybe it was the excitement of a new political leader to finally push back Rome. Maybe it was an escape from their mundane, purposeful lives of just preparing nets, catching fish, selling fish, eating fish, wake up and do it all again. Maybe they were looking for personal affirmation just to know, man, am I good enough? Or it could have been, maybe they'd been around this thing long enough and, man, they're just looking for an experience to really give him goosebumps. But Jesus, what he's doing, he's asking us the same question. What are you looking for? Is it acceptance, an excitement, an escape, help? Could you be looking for love, security, approval? But notice what comes after the question. There's an invitation. What are you searching for? What are you looking for? And Jesus looks at them Uh, John points to Jesus and he says, look. Jesus then to the same disciples, he says, hey, just come and see. Andrew invites Peter and Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see. But then Jesus makes a promise. He says, you will see. This morning, Jesus invites us to come and see, to see what we really need. Because we're all seeking something. Every day we're going through this life and there's something that I'm searching for. There's something that I'm seeking. It might be something personal. It could be for someone else. It might be for a family. But we're always seeking something. And Jesus invites us to come and to find in Him all we'll ever need. I would say whatever you need this morning, seek it in Jesus. Now that we would pray that he would help us in doing that. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.